Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Hi, and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cush, and I'm a licensed clinical therapist here in Annapolis, Maryland. So Woman Warriors has a private Facebook group for worried women. And if you are interested in joining the group, it's really easy. Just search Facebook for the Woman Warriors group. There'll be a couple of questions that you need to answer, and then you can join us in conversation, in extra resources, in connecting with other women who are worried about the world and are looking to heal some of their own stuff. And uh, we're there and having some great conversations, so I hope you'll join us. I will also provide a link in the show notes to how to connect to the group. So you can go to womanwarriors.com, click on the latest episode, and you will find a link in the show notes. So my guest today is Thais Gibson. She's an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She is extremely passionate about personal growth the subconscious mind, and connecting with others. With a Master of Arts and over 13 different certifications, ranging from CBT to hypnosis, Thais strives to continuously learn and grow. She is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on our adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs, and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us deeper insight into ourselves and our relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel often focuses on educating people on how to subconsciously reprogram this area of our lives. After overcoming her own challenges with addiction in her early years, Thais is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful or limiting programs in their own mind. She is focused on helping people retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance, and personal freedom in their lives. And today you're going to find out one of the core parts of her uh, trainings and courses that she has and how to heal your attachment wounds and feel more connected to yourself. I'm very excited about this conversation, so let's get started. Hi, Thais. Welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here today. 
I'm so excited and so grateful that you uh, are taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, I have watched a few of your videos and, um, you know, gotten to know a little bit about your work, but I would love it if you would share a little bit about yourself and what's inspired you to do the work that you do with attachment. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. So um, for me, it was a really personal journey. Um, I played sports a lot growing up and, um, at the age of 14, I had a knee surgery that was pretty intense and, and, um, actually became addicted to my painkillers after that and sort of went on like a seven year journey of like pretty much daily use. Um, and with like intermittent withdrawals and all kinds of not so fun things. And, um, was really determined, honestly, because my first experience, I, I was like addicted to these painkillers before I even understood yeah. what they were and what was going on. And so by the time I had my first experience of withdrawals, it was really kind of terrifying. And it sort of set me out on this journey to be like, how can I get sober? Cause I can't believe this is my life. Mm. Um, and it led me down a really valuable path at a, at some really crucial times in my life. And I, I went through like inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, yeah. different therapy, all kinds of different stuff. And, and nothing was really working for me mm-hmm. until, um, I was still in school part-time and I had somebody in, in one of my classes, like start talking to me about the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a lot of like really challenging experiences as being an addict where, you know, my part of me is going like, this is the last time, this is the last time I'm doing this. I, yeah. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop. And then, you know, I kept feeling helpless to myself. And what I later realized, it only took me seven years of like torment to get to this point, but um, I realized that battle that I was fighting in myself was actually the battle between my conscious and subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. And I went on to learn that the conscious mind can't actually outwill or overpower the subconscious mind which was like mind blowing for me and groundbreaking. Cause I'm like, well, why haven't I learned this in, in AA meetings and NA meetings and rehab and therapy? Like where was all of this? Because I understood at that point, like, okay, what's required for me to actually create change and transformation and healing is to address what I'm trying to address specifically at the subconscious level. So that took me on a journey of sort of becoming addicted to learning about this stuff. And I went on to do um, a master's degree in transpersonal psychology and 13 different certifications in hypnosis, CBT, NLP, Mm. somatic experiencing, like you kind of name it. Um, And, um, and started a practice that got really, really busy. I mean, healed myself first, um, did a lot of meditation, a lot of like, you know, really observing the contents of my mind, learning about the patterns, understanding principles of how the subconscious mind works Mm -hmm. and started a practice. And it got very, very busy, very quickly. And, um, I was sort of looking for help, like, oh my gosh, who do I train or send people to and, and trying to sort of figure out the dynamics of building a business. And after, quite a few years of running a practice, I had a friend of mine say like, you need to take this online. And so, um, we, we started a YouTube channel about a year and a half ago, like putting regular content up and, um, we have about 40,000 people on there pretty quickly. And, and, um, and it's, we decided to create the personal development school. So we've been putting out two courses a month and we have about 30 different courses and about 2000, um, members, And, um, we have, I do four live webinars a week where I answer Q and A's and we talk about basically everything you need to understand in terms of the process of transformation, whether it's in like your 
money mindset, whether it's in boundaries, people pleasing, your relationships, your attachment styles, and how to reprogram these things at the subconscious level. And it's basically a deep dive into the mind, but we specifically address everything there Mm -hmm. in a way that engages the subconscious mind in the process, because that is such a powerful part of, of change and real transformation and lasting transformation. So it's a very personal thing to me. And I care very much about the people and, and the whole process and experience. And it's, I'm like forever grateful every day that I get to be doing this work and that I'm in the place that I am in currently, um, not struggling every day and battling. And, and that's sort of what's, what's led to here now. Yeah. Well, I always, I truly believe that the, those, the healers that have healed themselves make the best teachers or whatever, the guides, (laughs) whatever you want to say. Um, Thank you. I believe that too. Yeah. I mean, we know what it's like to get from the struggle to the, 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 the other side. And, yes. and that's really important. Absolutely. So, so talk to us a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, I know I understand attachment theory, but the listeners might not. So talk to us about attachment and how our attachment patterns, our attachment wounds, or maybe our trauma from attach, you know, lack of attachment is impacting us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if it's okay with you, I guess I'll just do like sort of a synopsis of the different attachment styles and where Perfect. it comes from. That'd be um, great. So, so I remember actually learning about traditional attachment theory in um, university and kind of overlooking it because traditional attachment theory teaches you about basically the ways you connect to your caregivers and sort of how that translates into your adult romantic relationships um, and other relationships. But um, it really talks about temperament. Um, but what I talk about when we talk about attachment theory is something we've created called integrated attachment theory, which is sort of the overlap between traditional attachment theory developed by John Bowlby, which in and of itself was like groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've overlapped that with like the subconscious mind's core wounds that go along with each attachment style, um, the needs, the expectations, and the ways through which different attachment styles give and receive love. Okay. Um, and so the way I like to compare Um, your attachment style from like an integrated perspective is it's sort of like you have um, different people playing the same board game with a different rule book. Yeah. Your attachment style is like the way we, like the rules we basically have for relating to others. And you can only imagine like how challenging that would be playing a board game. And then you can only imagine how challenging that would be in a romantic relationship or in a family relationship when you have a totally different set of rules for what it means to relate to others. Yes. And so we have these four different attachment styles. And this is originally um, what John Bowlby and and later on Mary Ainsworth sort of added to, and I guess is still developing and transforming today. But um, he said that we have a securely attached individual and then we have three insecure attachment styles. Now, a securely attached person is somebody who essentially gets healthy rules for what it means to relate to others. And mm-hmm. so this looks like this individual when they cry, you know, and, and express emotion and our original attachment style develops around the ages of zero to two, but can change as we go on because the brain is neuroplastic. And if we have, um, emotions or we express needs or anything like that, usually we're attuned to, 
So a caregiver comes, meets those needs. And basically the byproduct of that is that a child and, and through their upbringing, they learn that, okay, my emotions are safe to express. My emotions are good. Mm-hmm. And when I do express something positive happens, like a need gets met, or if I express a need directly, it's safe to do so. And a need gets met. Mm-hmm. And so they learn that I am worthy of having feelings and needs. I'm worthy of expressing. I get heard. I can trust others. And this individual is a byproduct of having some of those early rules of relating goes on in their their adult relationships to feel confident relating to others, to feel worthy of having boundaries, safe to express their feelings, safe to get their needs heard and and show up as themselves. And that's uh, sort of what we're all aiming to get to, right? Mm, Yep. (laughs) And, And then we have our three insecure attachment styles. And these are the individuals that had some form of attachment trauma. Basically something didn't go quite right across the boards in a healthy enough way where overall this person could be secure. Mm -hmm. And so these three insecure attachment styles are anxious, preoccupied on sort of one end of the spectrum. And it's sort of the polar opposite of the continuum. We have our dismissive avoidance. And then somewhere in the middle, we have our fearful avoidance. Mm -hmm. And the anxious, preoccupied individual is somebody in their adult life that we might see as being maybe needy or clingy or afraid to be alone or having big abandonment wounds and fears in relationships. Mm -hmm. Then where this comes from is some kind of inconsistency in childhood. So this could be, for example, that one parent is warm and another parent is cold. And because we're naturally wired for attunement and without that from our caregivers, it trips this biological fear of abandonment that we all carry um, because we need attachment to survive. Like humans are very dependent, a very dependent species for a long period of time on caregivers. And so if there's inconsistency or even if both caregivers are really warm, but they both work a lot, any inconsistency from that warmth, basically what happens at the subconscious level for this child is that they build in positive associations to connection, but negative associations to being alone. And so they constantly have this like fear of being abandoned, fear of being alone, fear of being unsafe if they're abandoned or alone fears of being not good enough, fears of being rejected, disliked, excluded, or not belonging. And what I found is those tend to be the core wounds of the anxious, preoccupied individual. Mm -hmm. And so while it's easy to look at somebody and go, oh, that person's calling the other person so much, or, you know, that person's being so needy, or they, oh, that person goes from relationship to relationship, and they never want to be alone. You know, it's easy to judge, but what's actually happening at a subconscious level is that that individual is experiencing some form of a trauma response based on big core wounds and it's repetition plus emotion that programs the subconscious mind. So the repetitive warmth and coldness, the repetitive inconsistency can really imprint those traumas on an individual's subconscious. And so that's our anxious person basically. And really what they need from a relationship is a lot of closeness and consistency and they want to feel safe and they want to feel wanted and validated and included. And these are things that are really important to this individual. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have our dismissive avoidance and This is sort of the person who gets some form of emotional neglect on a very consistent basis in childhood. And sometimes this flies under the radar because sometimes we'll see that, um, you know, parents are really good at meeting the physical needs of this individual, like cooking them dinner and making sure they're clothed and fed and on time and that there's structure. But 
there can be a lot of inconsistency in, or not inconsistency, there can just be consistent lack of emotional neglect, like being emotionally available, um, attuning to the child, um, asking how they're feeling, having conversations about feelings and needs. And that can often be because those caregivers um, also are emotionally unavailable themselves or the primary caregiver is emotionally unavailable. It can also be because there's like a, a trauma, like a caregiver is just really depressed or really anxious and they just can't be there. Mm -hmm. Um, but as a byproduct of that, because this child comes into the world with this basic need for attunement and for connection, it constantly feels rejected in their upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so they adapt to this by going, well, uh, vulnerability feels awful and it only gets me rejected. And I have no positively ingrained, you know, built-in subconscious associations to vulnerability. It feels unsafe. It feels um, rejecting. And, and it must mean that something's wrong with me because a fundamental part of me is not being seen or cared for or heard. Mm-hmm. And a child's mind can't fathom like, oh, my caregivers are unavailable. A child's mind only knows how to personalize. So it goes, okay, I'm defective. Right. And something so, is broken inside me or it's some, there's something about me that my caregivers can't meet my needs. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so this individual goes on to go, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be safe by soothing myself and not letting anybody else meet my needs, not asking, not expressing my feelings. And we often see this person go on to become somebody who is quite dismissive and tries to push away and keep space and keep their walls up. And they often fear commitment or opening up. Um, Mm. They often feel shame a lot at a subconscious level. And they often can be people who stay alone for long periods of time and, and take space between relationships or don't love being in relationships and really value their own space and time because that's where they built in their positive associations that were, that's where they felt like they were safe and they had some form of control. Yeah. And often these individuals are in a low level of fight or flight um, the vast majority of their lives. And usually whenever the brain is producing a lot of cortisol from being in fight or flight mode or staying in its sympathetic nervous system space, naturally as a byproduct of that, people also want to withdraw. They go into like, okay, let me pull back and keep myself safe. And even regions of the prefrontal cortex can shut down with, with, um, a lot of cortisol production, which right. means a lot of these individuals act from like a more emotionally dysregulated place. And usually they're not really allowing themselves to feel their emotions. So they kind of go into this like protective mode and can stay there for very long periods of time. Yeah. And so that's our dismissive avoidance. And then we have in the middle, our last attachment style, which is the fearful avoidance. And fearful avoidance is sometimes referred to as anxious avoidant or disorganized attachment style. And I actually like those other two names better because they sort of contain really important pieces of information in the name itself. The fearful avoidant or the anxious avoidant, they experience both sides of the attachment spectrum. They experience the anxious side and all of those core wounds of like, will I be abandoned? Will I be unsafe? Will I be disliked? Will I be alone? And and negative feelings there. And they also experience a lot of the, I'm defective, something's wrong with me. They experience a lot of guilt and shame easily. And they often experience like, I am unsafe and I need to isolate. Mm -hmm. And they can kind of swing all the time from anxious to avoidant, from like, come here, come here, get close to me, I need you, to like, oh, you're close. Get away. Exactly, (laughs) stay back. Right, Right. you want a commitment? Nope, sorry. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, And so, you know, 
this person can be experienced by somebody outside of them as like being very hot and cold, as giving like a lot of intermittent reinforcement. But fearful avoidance are usually the most traumatized of all attachment styles. And usually it's because there was some kind of violence in the household, chaos, um, maybe addiction. And, mm -hmm. and as a result of that, this child learned like, wow, sometimes I can really get connection from my caregivers and sometimes I really can't. And in fact, it's really scary. Yeah. And that can be because, you know, sometimes parents are loving and sometimes they're fighting and, and it's crazy and it feels very unsafe and very untrustworthy of caregivers to behave that way. Or it can be, hey, mom or dad are, you know, sometimes sober and sometimes they're not. And it's like, you know, walking on eggshells, which, which day is it going to be today? Yeah. And as a natural byproduct of this, this child learns to become very hypervigilant. And their biggest core wound is, I can't trust, I will be betrayed. Yeah. And as, as a byproduct of this as well, they don't have, like, if you look at the anxious they have a strategy. They're like, I can soothe through others. I can connect to others. And that feels good. And, mm -hmm. and if you look at the dismissive, they're like, I can't connect to others, but there's enough consistency that they learn, you know, I can adapt to that by knowing I can soothe myself and that's my space of safety. Right. But the fearful avoidant, they don't get an attachment strategy because there's no cause and effect. It's not like, oh, if I do this bad thing, I get punished. Or if, you know, parents are available, they're warm and loving, and sometimes they're not, there's no order to the way they learn to attach. It's like super unpredictable. Mom could be sober or she could be drunk and there's no, there's no cause and effect that's measurable yeah. and able to navigate. And so this is why disorganized attachment style is also a great word for fearful avoidant because they have a disorganized way of attaching. And what they learn is their attachment strategy is to become extremely hypervigilant. So they learn to like pick up on facial expressions and body language and tone of voice and any subtle shifts in patterns, they're like super detectives for. Yeah. I have clients who describe sort of like having to read the room, whatever room it yeah. is, just like <laughs> what's, you know, what's going on, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this can be a superpower on one hand, because it can be like, wow, like you pick up on everything. But on the other hand, usually when there's a mind and trauma, the mind gives a lot more meaning to situations that goes, right. oh, and it usually projects its own core wounds yeah. as the meaning. So, oh, you know, that person shifted. I can't trust them and not, yeah. oh, the person shifted in their behavior and it means they're having a bad day or that, you know, they're afraid to share something or afraid to be vulnerable. It's like, oh, they're doing something bad or wrong. And so, you know, a lot of the mind takes its core wounds and its fears and, and at a subconscious level, it projects all those things back out because it's trying to be aware of the potential so it can protect itself. Yeah. But obviously that can create a lot of pain and challenging um, dynamics long-term in relationships. And so yeah. the fearful avoidant, the, the sort of last thing I'll say here as I close out all about these attachment styles is the fearful avoidant um, also tends to be hyper um, aware of others to the point of like sort of losing relationship to self. So they can be so aware of other people's feelings and needs in relationships as well, but sort of at the expense of their own, they tend to love through enmeshment because usually that was part of their survival strategy in childhood as well was like, if I can just get so aware of like, you know, what could make mom drink or what could make my parents become violent or fight, you know, if I can hyper tune into anything that I could do to disrupt that and really get clear about what people are feeling and needing, maybe I can increase my chances of being safe. Yeah. And so this person also loves to learn through a place of enmeshment and, and usually tends to really struggle with boundaries and identifying their own feelings and needs. And long-term that can create a lot of volatility in relationships. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. We talk about codependency, right? Yeah, that you're constantly meeting someone else's needs without taking care of your own, but also, yeah, seeing others' needs as more important than ours almost. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and usually like the adaptation of where that comes from and, and the codependent individuals are usually the anxious and the fearful. Mm-hmm. And and there can be dismissives too, but they're more on like the counter dependent side. But usually where that comes from is like at some point in childhood, there was like, okay, well, I know inherently I'm dependent on my caregivers to survive. Like without them, I would die. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, in order to stay safe, I have to meet their needs as best I can and avoid conflict and avoid pain as much as I can so that they can be okay, so that they can take care of me. And so a lot of codependency at, at, at a deep subconscious level is actually linked to like, I have to make other people's needs more important than mine in order to survive. Yeah. And it's like codependency equals safety. And that can be why people experience shame or guilt around setting boundaries or sharing their needs or people, you know, the mind is like, no, don't do those things. Cause it's trying to protect us, but yeah. we have to change those belief patterns at a subconscious level to free up that space. Mm. So it feels like it's so complex and it's so deeply embedded because it happens in childhood that like, how do we ever sort through this and get to the other side, which I know too, as a therapist that you can, but like, if it's so embedded in our subconscious mind, how do we, how do we figure that out? How do we tease it out? How do we be more grounded in ourselves? and yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. Yes, beautiful. So so what I found is that the subconscious mind is um, programmed through repetition plus emotion. And there are a tremendous amount of ways to like reprogram your subconscious. But as long as you know those overarching principles, it's very useful. So when it comes to healing your attachments down, becoming more secure, I found that there's like these five really key components that actually make up like what that attachment style is, like what those rules are if we really isolate those things. So mm. those are, what are the painful core wounds that I'm carrying? You know, what are the beliefs I have about my story about myself? So for mm-hmm. example, like the fearful avoidant, I will be betrayed. I cannot trust. I am unsafe. I am bad if I do anything wrong. And we see a lot of that like perfectionism in there. Um, mm-hmm. I could be alone or abandoned, all these things, right. That we've sort of touched on in the different attachment styles. Once we can isolate those, then we want to work on changing the story, looking for exceptions to that, changing our thought patterns because belief patterns create patterns of thought. Like I think of like beliefs as being a tree trunk and all the patterns of thought that come off of that tree trunk are like the tree branches mm. and thoughts produce emotions. Like if I'm thinking of how I'm going to be abandoned or disliked in a social setting, and I go into that social setting and I'm thinking those thoughts and believing those things, you know, how do I feel? I feel anxious, afraid, you know, these sorts of things. And, and emotions are, are largely made up of neurochemical responses. And right. so, you know, that's obviously creating an impact. And then neuroscience has proven that every single decision we make is actually based on our emotions. And so people, even who think they're like very logical, rational thinkers are often just making emotionally based decisions at the tipping point, but then are quick to rationalize or justify through logic. Hmm. So what we have to be able to do to change our emotions, to change our actions, to change our patterns of thought is really isolate those core beliefs that we have about ourselves or about how we are in relationships and start changing that story repetitively and really questioning those thoughts that we're running. So if I, for example, go into 
a room full of people and I'm like, oh, you know, maybe my past experience, maybe I had a wound that said people don't like me. And then I go into a social event or a networking event and I'm like, oh my gosh, look, that person's judging me. That person's looking at me funny. This Mm -hmm. person's not going to like me. And I'm telling myself all these stories based on this old belief imprint because of a painful experience that says I am disliked, which is a core wound or belief then I'm going to have all those thought patterns and all those emotions. And then how am I going to respond to people in my actions? I'm probably going to like be short or be afraid or not open up or push people away or, you know, so it's this chain of events that refeeds itself. Mm -hmm. And so when I can work on just questioning those stories that are coming up, or if I can look for like 10 to 15 pieces of proof, why I am likable on a daily basis. So that I'm using repetition that elicits an emotional association that, that says, oh, look, I'm likable because I have this friend and this person likes me and this colleague likes me and I have this good quality. If I can just find things that are repetitively counteracting that original belief imprint, then I'm actually working to reprogram the subconscious mind. No, I can't just say I am liked, I am liked, I am liked because the language of the subconscious is emotions mm-hmm. and symbols. So if I feel like I'm really disliked, and that's my core belief. And then I just try to give an affirmation that counteracts it. Chances are my, my subconscious is going to go, no, you're not. Right. And it's going to put out an emotion that's actually repro- that's actually programming in I am disliked even further. Right. It's like so- reinforcing that sense of, <laughs> yeah, like, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So affirmations can be extremely counterproductive when you start to learn more about the subconscious. And so, yeah. and, and I think that's a big piece for a lot of people. So yeah. So um, we have to have evidence because evidence is symbols and it contains emotion. All memory is colored with emotion. So if I can say, look, I'm, I was liked here by this person and I have a memory that of that, you know, and like I know what that person. feels like. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm speaking the language of the subconscious. I have the, the symbols or the, the um, like imagination, the, the picture of the memory with all the emotion intact. And so I need those 10 to 15 pieces of proof on a daily basis or I need to be questioning my stories that I'm telling myself as I go into that social event. Like, can I absolutely know it's true that that person across the room is judging me? Right. And is it possibly, you know, that, that they're just like looking at me because they're interested in speaking to me. Like we have to start questioning that, that incessant stream of internal dialogue. That's actually just largely based on core wounds being activated. Yeah. yeah. So I, I find that that, that piece, I have run groups for women, mindfulness groups and like highlighting how you can sort of rethink what your assumptions are about situations, either, Mm -hmm. you know, other people or how you're going to be received, you know, it can really be eye-opening. Absolutely. And I think when we really do that work, you know, what we'll find is like most of the things we think about other people we can't know are true. And most of the things people are thinking are about themselves, not about you. Or if they are thinking something bad, it's based on their own wounds and their own fears. And so it's a very freeing thing. So, so that's one pillar, right? It's like, can we question, like you said, your assumptions or or these stories, these beliefs, these thought patterns that are running. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge component of becoming more secure because that's largely the painful rule you have for relating in the first place that's creating an insecure attachment style. So that's one. Mm-hmm. And then the other big things are, can I learn who I am? Can I understand my needs as a person? Yes. And this is so important because usually dismissive avoidance are completely out of relationship to themselves. They're like in a state of survival and they're like escaping themselves into things a lot. 
And so yeah. it's, can I learn who I am without that, without the the video games, the creature comforts, the television, the binge, you know, the substances. Things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the same for fearful and anxious because usually they're so hyper-focused outside of them that they've lost relationship to themselves inside of them. And so it becomes, yeah. can I start to learn my needs and can I express those needs to others and learn to practice exposing that and, and getting seen and taking up space in the world mm. so that people can see me and understand me and I can feel heard as a result. I can feel connected truly in a two-way exchange as a result. That's yes. a huge piece. Yes. And then it's, can I learn to set my boundaries? Can I learn to understand my own expectations in a relationship? And can I learn the ways through which I give and receive love, which is largely through my personality needs is sort of going back to that needs component, but also my love languages, which is the work of um, Dr. Gary Chapman. Mm-hmm. And um, we have these five love languages. I'm, I'm, I imagine you must have like, I don't know, maybe shared about these before, but just super high level. Um, yeah. They're gifts, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, and acts of service. And these are the ways through which people give and receive love. And if we can like learn these five pillars of what it means to be in a relationship and we can start doing these things in a healthy way that in and of itself absolutely transforms people from insecurely attached to securely attached. And I've seen this at this point, thousands and thousands of times. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think, well, just those, well, both pieces that the, all the pieces, but the getting to know yourself and your needs, I think for the work that I do with clients like that, even it's so hard sometimes for them because of how they're, you know, their subconscious, their, you know, the messages they're telling themselves, but it's so valuable. It's so, so important. A hundred percent. And one of the biggest things I see, which is so disempowering for anxious, preoccupied individuals the most, but also fearful avoidance a lot is it's like anxious individuals so badly want love and connection, but they're in this state of self-abandonment because mm-hmm. it's like, if I'm so externally focused on everybody else, well, naturally the byproduct, the, the primary casualty becomes the relationship to self. Yeah. And as long as I don't have a relationship to myself, and as long as I don't feel like I can communicate my needs or share who I am or what I desire in a relationship or what's important to me, I will always feel unseen, unheard, misunderstood, unworthy of receiving, not deserving. Yeah. And so these people who desperately want love and connection are actually sabotaging themselves at the same time, just at a subconscious level by being so focused on other people and yeah. by not allowing themselves to take up space. Yeah. I just you, saw someone referring to that as self-betrayal, but same idea, right? Just like absolutely. we're so actively like har- harming ourselves. And yet we think we're working so hard to attach to other people and yet it's hurting us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you think of like love as like this, this need, and it's one of our six basic human needs from, from Tony Robbins work. But if, if we look, which is like a very unconscious thing, it's like deep, deep subconscious into the unconscious mind. And if we look at that as like one of the things we're naturally wired for, we have to fill up 50% of our gas tank every day. Like that's how we have healthy interdependent relationships. And if we don't have any availability to do that 50%, we like come to relationships from a total place of lack. And then we need, and then we cling. And then we put up with things that we wouldn't normally put up with. We allow our boundaries to be violated. 
And so it's not until we develop a relationship to our internal world and to our internal selves that we can actually come into relationships with 50% of our tank full at any time. And then anything else just feels like a healthy benefit. And we come at relationships from a space of abundance and openness, and we feel like it's safe to, to be seen and heard. And so that's such a necessary ingredient to, to creating change. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so important. Yeah. We have to feel like it's, we're worthy of taking up space almost, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And so uh, just because of where we are in the world today, so with the pandemic and people maybe being isolated more than they might have been and and that sense of connection being so disrupted. How, are you seeing that in your school, your business, the people that you're working with, that there's some a greater impact of, of attachment wounds potentially? Yeah, absolutely. I would say there's a few interesting things going on. Like one of the first things I've definitely noticed is I like to think of our needs as like these buckets that we have to fill every day and we have to check in on them. And so I won't go too much into like this, nuances of needs because there's a lot to say but we have six basic human needs and research has like conclusively discovered this and so these are growth contribution love and connection significance and certainty and novelty Mm -hmm. so what i've found in like researching the subconscious mind is that we have all these strategies through which we get these needs met and let's say for example, and and these strategies are based on programmed in positive versus negative association. So let's just say, for example, let's pretend Bob grows up and he's got a really great family, but then let's pretend Bob is like kind of unsuccessful in building friendships and romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. Then Bob builds in more positive associations to the strategy of connecting to others through family than to friendships or other emotionally based relationships. So Bob's strategy for getting his basic human need for love and connection that might be family versus somebody who has really positive social relationships, but not good family relationships. They might have a really strong personality need of social connection Mm -hmm. or some people it's romantic relationships that they really feel empowered. in. so they are big in romantic relationships. So these become like our personality needs. Like Bob might consider himself a family man and somebody else empowered in romantic relationships might talk about how they're a relationship person and they love romance. And, and so the, the strategies we use at a subconscious level to get our basic human needs met become like our identity, become our personality needs and how we identify ourselves and what we think about and talk about and spend our money and time on and all these things that make up like a really important part of ourselves. And what happens that can be extremely disempowering is that the brain, the subconscious mind is like a needs meeting machine. It's Mm -hmm. always trying to find ways to get its needs met. And because it's always survival based, it's really interested in like the fastest way, not the most effective way. So for example, you could see people who are trying to get their needs met for emotional connection, you know, in, in emotionally based, like vulnerable relationships, they might do this by, you know, if they feel emotionally disconnected from their partner, they might start a fight and start bickering with somebody because it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, even though it's not a healthy way, when two people are bickering or fighting, we're both super emotionally connected and we're both really present and investing our emotions into a situation. So the brain does a lot of like trying to get needs met in the fastest way that can often be like a counterproductive way if if we observe it from the conscious level. And so this is like one of the biggest things I've seen through the pandemic is like 
because our natural strategies for getting our needs met by seeing family, by being around our close friends and getting our emotional connection needs met or being around community and being socially connected, all these different things are naturally being robbed from us circumstantially. And so what I see is then the brain goes into like sort of this panic and it's like, okay, what are my strategies of getting these needs met? And the brain will find whatever it can. So then it's like, you know, people binge watching like romantic comedies or like Netflix (laughs) shows or like, like literally the brain's like, all right, I feel emotionally connected to the characters on reality TV and like doing all these things. But if we think of that need as a bucket, our brain's doing these like fast things to get its needs met, but it's like we opened the tap and we're like letting little drops out because the more indirectly we get a need met, the longer it takes and the more downsides it has Hmm. versus if we can be conscious about it and be like, wow, I'm realizing my needs for love and connection are not getting met. So what can I do from a conscious perspective? I can have more vulnerable conversations. I can have FaceTime dates with my my partner, I can't see, and we can cook dinner and open a bottle of wine on the computer and share and talk like that. Yeah. You know, if we don't come up with these conscious creative strategies to really open the faucet that gets our need met and really go as directly to the source as possible, then we get caught in these really counterproductive things where our brains are quick, watch the reality TV thing because you feel alone. And then people, you know, that spills into all these other areas of life. Then we're not showing up at work. We don't feel motivated. Part of our emotional state is largely based on, are we getting our needs met? And if we're not, our brain's going to constantly have an output of negative emotional feedback to tell it, hey, you need to pivot and adapt. And if we're not aware, then we can just get drowned out by that. And and to me that the sort of low level of, or maybe even high level, depending on how you're feeling about the coronavirus, just it's constantly humming in the background. Yes. To me, just, I I just see, you know, old traumas being ignited and, you know, replayed out and just sort of falling back into sort of some of the old patterns that maybe you had worked toward healing. I know I relied a lot on chocolate for a period of time to help me feel better, which was one of my coping strategies as a kid. So, uh, yeah. So yeah. it um, Yeah. Yeah. And you're saying something so important, which is like that we go back to old coping strategies in childhood. That's exactly because as we go through life and as we heal and go into adulthood, it's like part of becoming an adult is actually like healing those old traumas because the the psyche freezes in time basically where we have traumatic events. So like if we, let's say it's like me and I had something similar as a child where I would like binge eat candy when my parents were fighting like crazy and I would like hide behind the couch. So, so I had to go work on that and heal that like childlike wound of myself going to rely on that. But what's happened and why that's such a good analogy is like the brain was like, Oh, I need my needs met for safety, for comfort and emotional connection when my parents are fighting. And what are my earliest subconsciously programmed emotional associations um, to food? Oh, well, they're my mother's breast milk, which is oxytocin, the bonding neurochemical. I'm I'm super emotionally connected. I feel comfortable and safe because I'm being held and cradled while I'm breastfed. And so when I don't get my needs met, my brain goes, oh, I know what to do. Fastest strategy, go to this tree drawer in my house as a child and <laughs> binge eat all that food as a subconscious strategy to get those needs met. And so then we have these like strategies we, we've created. And if we don't 
recognize that those like unhealthy strategies people go through and everybody has their stuff, right? Like no matter how far we are along on our journey, we'll always have like our things to work on. But once we can realize like, Hey, this unhealthy habit that we have, is actually a feedback mechanism for us because it's telling us really specific needs that we're trying to get met at a subconscious level. Then what we can do is like, that's a golden nugget because then it becomes, Oh, I'm eating like binge eating candy or whatever. And Mm -hmm. it's like, cool what needs does binge eating candy meet? Oh my gosh, it makes me feel safe and emotionally connected and comfortable. And, and it, okay, great. So I know as a human being, I have to come up with the best, most conscious updated strategies to get my needs met for emotional connection, for safety and for comfort in my life. And as a byproduct of doing that repetitively, my brain will no longer need to rely on candy to feel safe and emotionally connected and all these different things. And so it's really yeah. cool because we can notice these unhealthy habits we've all developed from the pandemic. If anybody's experiencing that and go, great, what needs is this meeting for me? And how can I come up with a better way of getting these needs met that's conscious and intentional and has less downsides? And yes. how can I make sure I'm doing that regularly? So it's programmed in. So my subconscious naturally goes to that instead of to the, you name it for whatever anybody is experiencing. Yeah. Well, I love how you describe it as like a nugget. It's like, okay, this is helping me learn something about myself and the needs maybe that didn't get met the way they could have or should have been. And, but I can do that. I can heal that myself, which I think is so important. Absolutely. And then it puts us in relationship to self. It's like, Hey, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like I can I'm listening myself. to me. Right. <laughs> Exactly. So I really believe, and and I've seen this over and over again, like every, I really truly believe as a person and and seeing this in my practice and in the school and just working with so many people over the years, like every single thing that's painful in our lives is providing an extremely valuable piece of feedback, either about the beliefs we're carrying around a situation and the thought patterns that accompany them or about unmet needs we have in our lives. Because at the root level, the only reason we experience pain is because we have unmet needs. And the only reason we experience suffering is because we give meaning to those needs not being met. And those are the only two reasons we can experience any emotional pain or suffering period. So if I, for example, have an unmet need of love and connection during the pandemic, because let's pretend I'm like isolated and nobody's around, then that's painful. And that's actually good because the brain's supposed to give you negative emotional output because it forces us to adapt and to grow. And that's how we survive for so long as a species and stop food and water and shelter and all these different things. But then the brain goes like this. I'm not getting love and connection because I'm not worthy and I'm going to be isolated forever and I'm going to die alone and I'm not good enough. And we tell all these painful stories Yeah. And then we have suffering. And so when we can look at every emotional experience and we can go, okay, what are the stories? What's the meaning I'm giving to this experience? And that really helps to identify the belief and thought patterns. And when we can question those things, like, can I know that because let's pretend I'm in the pandemic alone, can I know that means I'm not good enough as a person or am I in like a worldwide crisis right now? (laughs) And like, you know, and so when we can break through those stories, like you were talking about earlier, questioning your assumptions. And then if we can combine that by going, okay, great. And so what's my unmet need here? And how can I strategize for this? Hmm. How can I like try to get love and connection met? You know what? Maybe I call people and I talk on the phone more, or I show up more vulnerably to my conversations, or I, you know, have dinner dates on Skype with people, you know, whatever it is, like when we strategize, 
this is how we really emotionally regulate. And if we do those things effectively, it's actually really hard to stay in suffering or pain. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Such good stuff. Oh my goodness, Thais, this has been a conversation so full. I feel like we could probably talk for another, however long we've been talking, (laughs) but uh, I want to be sure that people are able to find you and know where to get your information for your school and all of that. So um, how do people find you? Um, In terms of where they can find the school, uh, personaldevelopmentschool.com. And um, you can take an attachment style quiz on there too. It's like right on the front page. You just click on attachment style quiz. And it gives you a breakdown of like what your attachment style is based on the questions. And we have like a a full report that comes with it and video explanations and all this stuff to like help you understand that a little bit more. And then, um, yeah, in the school itself, we have, we have uh, over 30 different pre-recorded courses on like, you name it, like understanding your needs, your boundaries, codependency and enmeshment all different attachment style reprogramming courses, like deep dive into the subconscious, so many different things and over a hundred or so webinars um, that we've previously done. And we do four every single week that are just like open bonus content and live Q and a. Yeah. That's a great place to jump in there. And, um, and I think that was your, the rest of your question, right? (laughs) Oh, and we have free content on YouTube, personal development school dash Tiny skips. And I put tons of free stuff on there too. Awesome. Well, I will definitely include all of those links in the show notes and just, you know, so great that you offer. I I did a little search prior to our conversation, just so much free stuff as well as the paid stuff, which is always so great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me today and for the beautiful work you're doing in the world and sharing your podcast and getting out there and supporting people and, and being the person that you are. Oh, thank you, Thais. I so appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, I'm excited to share our conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Wow. As I said, that conversation was so full of amazing nuggets of information and I do feel like I can have Thais back on the program to explore more about how our attachment wounds and our attachment patterns impact relationships. So maybe we'll have her back again. But uh, I just, to me, the concept that becoming more connected with ourselves, better understanding us, better understanding our needs, what we need in the moment is so key to healing and so important in feeling seen and heard and finding your voice in the world. So I just so appreciated that we explored that and that is my big takeaway. And I hope your takeaway too to helping yourself heal whatever attachment wounds you might be experiencing that building a better relationship with yourself is clutch. So important, so key. So you can find all of Thais's information and ways to find her personal development school in the show notes. You can also find the link to join the private Woman Warriors group on Facebook in the show notes as well. I hope you all 
have a wonderful week. Maybe take some time to check in with yourself about what you need in any given moment throughout the day and see if you can meet those needs in a healthy and productive and connecting way with yourself. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening and subscribing to the Woman Warriors podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com.